Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host. Today, it's wonderful, a wonderful time to have on this podcast, this episode, Christine Hansen. Christine, welcome to the Energy Fellows. Thank you, Mark. It's just delightful to talk to you again and catch up. Well, I want to go back many years now, back about 15 years ago. It was Centennial of Oklahoma. And so we had, we being the Energy Advocates, I was part of that. I was president of the Energy Advocates at the time. And we, and it's based out of Tulsa, but it's a statewide or an international organization, actually. We had four events that we hosted for the Centennial. And one of those was called Women in Energy. And we had one event for the past and the, the future and the present. But one specifically, which I was very proud of hosting, was Women in Energy. And we honored many, but you were the standout because you got Energy Advocate of the Year also for all that you had done for the energy industry in Oklahoma and nationally, as far as that goes, internationally. And so we honor you with that and we're delighted to work with. Wonderful, always supporting all of us in the energy sector, not just in oil and gas, but all forms of energy. And we really appreciate your leadership through the years, but it's been now 15 years I think that we've even had a conversation like this. So I'm really excited about having you on the Energy Fellows. And so let's get started, Christine. I want to hear from you more than I want to dialogue myself. So I want to talk about your journey, where it all began. And just, if you will, take your time. Tell us about the journey of life that brought you to Oklahoma along the way. You know, Mark, I got to Oklahoma because of the job. I was hired to be the executive director of the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission, which is an organization of 37 states. It's a real obscure piece of the U.S. Constitution that allows states to come together in what's called a compact and to work on specific issues. And this Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission was formed at the behest of then-Governor Marlin of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And at a time when states were regulating oil and gas exploration and production, 1930s, but the federal government was looking aggressively at regulating over the top of states. So that was the impetus for this organization being founded. And I was lucky enough to be selected in a national search to be the executive director of the IOGCC. And that brought me to Oklahoma, a place I just learned to love and learned to love the people there. I certainly love the subject of energy. It's so important for not only the states, the individual producing states, but for the nation, of course, and for the world. What year did you begin? I came to the job with a background in law. And my earliest job was as a newspaper reporter. So I was a political reporter and raised in Iowa, of all places. Mm -hmm, Right. 
not an oil and gas producing state, though I will tell you they have drilled in Iowa. They looked for it there. <laughs> and so what year did you start as far as the Compact Commission? What year did you start, did you say? I started in 92. 92. 1992. Well, you were part of the uh, stewardship program, yeah. Yes. That was a period of time when the importance of oil and gas exploration and production was getting a backseat in states and nationally. The EPA and the Department of Interior were both moving ever so gradually into state regulation. And the governors wanted somebody who had some federal experience. I had worked for a U.S. senator and I'd worked in Washington in a couple jobs, so I knew how Capitol Hill worked. And the governors at that point were looking for somebody who could sort of re-energize this important organization and make it more relevant on the national level and keep the federal government out of regulations where they knew nothing. And it's based in Oklahoma City, which is interesting for those that are just now getting familiar with the Compact Commission, Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission. And you mentioned it started way back with Marlin. Quite a history. And my former boss, Dewey F. Bartlett, who was a U.S. senator, but he was governor, and he was really proud of being part of that, your organization, or compact, I should say, through the years. Because anytime he gave a talk about energy, it seemed to come up about the, uh, and it wasn't called the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission, then it was another name, but that's what it led to. And I was going to mention the stewardship program was something that you, I believe, introduced or we were part of that was important. I know yes, you're big, big on energy efficiency and environmental preservation was part of the theme in a sense. Another part of the theme was just recognition for what the states have done over the many decades to preserve the environment, protect the public, and promote the development of this important resource. The states stand only to profit when jobs are created, when the resource is developed, as long as it's done in an environmentally sound way. And that's what the states have worked at over the decades. The first environmental laws that I could find were passed by the state of New York in the 1800s for the regulation of exploration and production of oil. The first environmental laws in states well ahead of any environmental laws at the federal level. My goodness, quite a history. And you were part of that history, yeah. Uh, what I found in the, the history is important, but what I found in the job was that the industry was always right there, also caring about the environment. And that fact was appreciated by the oil and gas regulators. It was appreciated by the governors that I worked with. They recognized that it was in the industry's best interest to produce responsibly. And that is a fact that so many in Washington just don't appreciate. No, you're right, because the industry has stepped forward in many ways. And like you mentioned, the stewardship board we talked about, you were instrumental with, and all the environmental issues that you confronted way back 15, 30 years ago are still alive and well. And you've served with uh, many, many governors. And a lot of those have gone on to Congress and U.S. Senate and have represented their states. They have. There are three governors, a former chairman who are now serving in the U.S. Senate, 
Senator Manchin from West Virginia was my chairman, just a great guy. He was chairman of the IOGCC and very active. And he's in the U.S. Senate now, as is Senator Rounds. He was the former governor of South Dakota and a former IOGCC chairman. And Senator Hoven from North Dakota, who mm-hmm. was chairman twice, as was Dewey Bartlett. Dewey Bartlett was a two-time chairman yes. of the IOGCC. The chairmanship rotates every year different governor. Well, he loved it for sure. I heard that after he was governor, I worked for him as an intern and as a staffer when he was U.S. Senator. And he was really big on what you're talking about, you know, the balance of of energy and environmental. And one thing I remember, he was going to give a talk. You'll appreciate this. He was going to give a talk at OPEC. And this was 1975, summer of 1975. Yeah. And he asked a few of us to help write the speech. Well, I didn't know a whole lot by any means, (laughs) but I gave it a try. And as a Princeton graduate, which he was, he marked my paper. I had more red marks than there were print. And so he helped me uh, understand energy a little bit better. (laughs) I know you'd appreciate that because it takes a team, doesn't it, to make sure that it works. He did deliver the talk in OPEC. And I think of the challenge you have to keep all these governors in in line on supporting certain issues. I guess you met to do that, you'd have to meet, what, have committees and quarterly meetings, those kind of things? How did it work? Yes, yes. When I became executive director, we were having two meetings a year. At that time, the internet was just coming into existence, and we were one of the first organizations to take advantage of technology, and we formed an internet group for all the oil and gas directors so they could be joined together on the internet and chat with one another. But our meetings were a high point for a lot of them because they got a chance to exchange ideas and philosophy, step away from their day-to-day work for a few days. And it was something that oil and gas directors, now long retired, who I keep in touch with, tell me was one of the most valuable things about their job just that trading of information with their counterparts, and having an opportunity to meet informally with members of industry, just to have a chat, not over a piece of paper, an application for something, but just to have a chat about how their operation was going. Very valuable. I'm going to go a different route now. I want to ask you, there are those that are upcoming leaders. As far as that goes, there are some senior leaders along the way but that need advice like we all do. But do you have advice for especially those that are upcoming leaders as far as the energy industry and maybe uh, habits that they should look at, opportunities they should look at, something that you could provide them some advice that could help them? One of the things I found in all my jobs is that I tried to outwork everybody else. And I have a workaholic tendency. So (laughs) I'd work late into the evening. I'd work on weekends, but I loved all my jobs. And they say, if you work at something you love, it's not like work. There's a tendency when you're just entering into a profession, particularly, that you want some instant results. You want this to be done now. And so patience and hard work are two really key things. I'll give you an example of patience. The infrastructure bill that Congress passed last year contains an appropriation for the first time to the states to help them plug orphan wells. 
Those are wells drilled often in the early 1900s for which there's no owner, and they weren't properly plugged. They pose an environmental danger. All the states have plugging funds. All of the states have recognized that this is a problem. They have a fund for it. All of the funds were inadequate. And we started putting out an annual report just to highlight the problem and to quantify the number of wells that needed plugging. We set up a committee to try to advocate for increased funding at the state level, but also to look at whether the federal government shouldn't step up with some money. I wrote some legislation at the time that became part of the infrastructure bill that passed last year. And as a result, the states are getting $50 million to plug these abandoned wells. It's particularly important in eastern states where they've got many thousands of wells and paltry plugging funds. But that's how long it took. It took over 20 years of trying to get the federal government to recognize a responsibility. And it took over 40 years of the IOGCC documenting the need, documenting the problem. So patience is something, uh, you know, hard to tell somebody in their 20s, just wait 30 years, you'll get it done. (laughs) (laughs) No, that is a long time, but it's worth the effort, and you did that effort. But as you know, Mark, that's the way government operates. It takes a long time, and it takes plugging away at it and having advocates. Uh, Senator Inhofe in Oklahoma was a huge advocate of this. Lisa Murkowski, senator from Alaska, was a huge advocate of this. And their staffs just continued to work the issue, continued to push it, and then it gets done. Great advice (laughs) that can be shared with others, including, don't have to be young folks, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I still have some ideas that still need to be implemented, but (laughs) we'll see where those things go. Well, look how long it took you to get that great movie produced. Oh, well, Um, thank you. Sherwood Forest, fabulous, fabulous movie. And that was not an overnight effort. It was was recognizing that great story and finding a way to get it done. You're right. And it was a patience game because, you know, it goes back to when you were uh, active in Oklahoma. We had a dedication of the sculpture in England back around 1991, about a year or so before you came to Oklahoma. And then about 2001, there was a dedication in Ardmore, Oklahoma, of the Woolpatch Warrior statue recognizing the roughnecks of Sherwood Forest. And so I appreciate you bringing that up. And hopefully those that are not aware of it will I'll leave a show note so that they know where to go when it comes to seeing the documentary. But it's something I hope that everyone gets a chance to look at. It doesn't cost anything. It's not where you have to pay to go see. It's available for the public through pbs.org, Sherwood Forest, Top Secret. So, yes, those are the kind of patience games you want to get a featured film done, but documentary instead. Yeah. Hope everybody watches it. It's just splendid. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so too. And I appreciate you mentioning that. It means a lot for us to have your support. Anytime we have your support and encouragement means we've done something right. (laughs) So I appreciate that. What's ahead for you right now? Something that you are looking at as far as energy or anything like that that you could share? Well, I tell you, retirement is fabulous. I really have. I have enjoyed being retired. I miss the people. I especially miss having IT support. 
that's one of the downsides of retirement. But I've enjoyed retirement. I've always enjoyed travel. And so I've been traveling quite a bit. Uh, a trip to Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam next month. That'll oh, be goodness. fun. I had one lined up last summer. I was supposed to go on a Smithsonian trip across Siberia from Mongolia to Moscow. When Putin invaded Ukraine, the Smithsonian emailed us and said, we're not going to do our trip across Siberia. So I thought that would be very fun. That would be. I remember some of the trips that I actually back in 1992, I went to Russia and went down by the Caspian Sea and trips like that, whether it's business like energy or even travel like you're doing, is an understanding of other people. And I would say that that alone is worth a lot, you know, peace through understanding type atmospheres that you get to see firsthand how people relate and how they have the same needs we have, you know, food, fuel, clothing, whatever, you know, and you find that rewarding. Yes. Those trips make you more appreciative of living in the United States, how lucky we are to have been born here. And especially for women. You know, I would never have had the chance in the United States and in many of these other countries. It's the joy of seeing other things, but also the appreciation it gives you for what you have. You're exactly right. And to know that when talking about energy, we can discuss and debate all forms of energy. In some countries, you don't get to debate about anything. We get to look at, you know, whether it's oil and gas or wind, solar, we have some options. Other countries are basically said, you have no options. Here it is. There's some upside to, big upside to where we live and how we can debate issues. You know, ESG wasn't, I'd say that. ESG is talked about today, environmental, social governance, quite a bit. You read about it. And there's companies that are facing those issues. But really, it wasn't that already being in practice somewhat with IOGCC. I mean, you were already addressing that to a certain degree without it calling ESG. I mean, Mark, you're absolutely correct. The states absolutely were addressing it. It's sad that the state role in protecting the environment is not properly acknowledged or the company role. I saw a lot of companies that were stepping up and doing things that the states weren't requiring of them, but they knew it was a better way to operate. They knew it was the right thing to do. And the states are appreciative of that kind of effort. And I think the people are too, you know, if they would just know about it. And I know you were advocacy as well. You had uh, papers. I remember going by or picking up at your location at the time. There was documents that you would print up, information. Uh, You had research going on. You were ahead of quite an operation. I mean, you think about it when you have 37 governors or so that you're responsible for and having accurate information that know that's going to be attacked, if I say attacked, at least research to make sure you're accurate, it took a lot of effort. How big was your staff? I mean, you did a lot, I know you're on your own, besides... We did do a lot. The staff was between six and 10 people. What we relied on was the extended staff of all those people out in the States. So our committees were really active committees. Our committees drafted a lot of these documents we put them together, we published them, we distributed them, we made sure that press releases were issued and governors testified before Congress and things like that. But it was the state people who did the work. You might mention about IOGCC as far as the, the composition of those that were appointed. I mean, it's not just the governors, but isn't there a process 
for uh, representation from each state? What's that process? Yes, there is. And it's the governors who make those decisions and the governors appoint committee members to our committees. So our committees consisted not only of state employees, but also of respected industry people. And how many can go on a committee or represent a state? Is there a number count on that? Or is it how do the people say there's somebody out there today that wants to be part of that? There was not a limitation to it. Not a limitation. And some states, the governor would only appoint one person to each committee. A state like Oklahoma, where there's lots of expertise, the, the governor would appoint several people to each committee. Very good representation in the larger states. One thing that you were a leader on was also workforce development. You encouraged others to look at oil and gas, the oil and gas industry, to be part of the industry. And because of your education efforts, we're facing right now, Christine, a challenge in workforce. The image of the oil and gas sector alone is somewhat demonized by certain groups and so forth. And yet, I think that it's kind of like what you said, if people really knew the facts and was educated, it would be not the same response. But we face that as a leader of the IOGCC of the past to now. What have you seen and how can we better develop this positive image? Because there's so many great things coming from oil and gas. Realize there's a transition going on that futures is going to be changing. I think most people in the oil and gas industry realize that and want to be part of the transition, whatever that might be. But we've got a long way to go yet in the oil and gas sector to get to the next transition. How do you view this? Right. Oh, a long way. We absolutely need domestic oil and gas workers. One thing I found was that we had some very active members when I was at IOGCC who were from universities. Charlie Mankin, who you knew well, many years, the state geologist in Oklahoma, was one of our very active members. And he encouraged us, encouraged the states to encourage the governors, to encourage their educational institutions to be engaged in this industry. I think governors can do a lot to promote these jobs if they're asked to. They have to be asked. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Charles Mankin. What a wonderful gentleman. Really miss him. Nancy and I miss you here in Oklahoma, but glad to know that you're back east in D.C. and and have some opportunities to be able to dialogue. I think we ran across a mutual friend recently that we know that you're going to be able to visit with hopefully soon. And then that person was a part of the energy scene for quite a long time as well. I'm coming across a lot of good friends like yourself that have made a difference in others' lives, not just in energy, but in their lives. And we really appreciate your friendship and what you've done. It's still, you know, you talk about patience and being a hard worker, and you've described Oklahomans quite a bit <laughs> because, and I'm sure from Iowa as well, the idea of being able to be patient along the way, carry the message that's correct and carrying it forward is so important. Is there any other advice or maybe even habits I look at habits quite a bit like a routine. I, I get in a routine, it's much better than if I try not to uh, fight it. It's better to, you know, have certain practices that I do each day as far as scheduling and things like that. What advice from a standpoint of habit or habits that you have or that you did have that you can talk about? I've got a daily couple morning habits. I read a little bit of the Bible every morning and I make my bed. My mother told me, 
that as you go through life, you're going to have to do something you don't like every day. <laughs> so you might as well make your bed every morning <laughs> and get Love that it. one out of the way. Love it. And so it's just a reminder that you have to do things that you don't care to do. You don't want to spend the time doing, but making that bed and seeing it all nice and smooth and looks good every time you go in the bedroom. It's a silly habit, but one that has paid off for me. And keeping connected with God is also something that pays off. That's wonderful. Very wonderful. Besides reading the Bible, are there any other things you're reading or recommend as far as reading or even as far as newspapers, those kind of things that you re-recommend? I still read a couple newspapers every day. The real paper newspapers, it's fun to have them (laughs) delivered to my front door. I've gotten into a lot more spy novels since I've retired. I used to read mostly nonfiction and biography and history, but I'm getting sort of hooked on spy novels. Though I did just read the book called Eliza Hamilton about Alexander Hamilton's wife. Right. Uh, came out after the musical came out. What a great book. Beautifully written. And again, makes you appreciate what you have. Because mm-hmm. growing up in colonial America, wow, the hardships that they put up with, the losses of half their children because of disease, mm-hmm. little things that we've got it so good. We really do. And I'd love to continue, Christine. You've made, again, a great impact on my wife, Nancy, and my life. And we appreciate your friendship and your leadership through the years. We hope to have you back on the Energy Fellows uh, down the road. And in the meantime, it sounds like you're going to be on the road or in the air, it sounds like, maybe fairly soon. So be safe and have a wonderful time ahead in 2023. You've been listening to the Energy Fellows podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host. Again, thanks, Christine Hansen. Thank you, Christine, for doing such You're a wonderful welcome, job Mark. for Good us. You're welcome, Mark. Good to be with you. It's wonderful to have you on. And remember, the future depends on us, depends on all of us. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Oh,